Part One of Ministry of Disturbance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenever, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Ministry of Disturbance by H. Beam Piper. This story was first published in Astounding Science Fiction, December 1958. Part One. The symphony was ending, the final triumphant pian soaring up and up and beyond the limit of audibility. For a moment, after the last notes had gone away, Paul sat motionless, as though some part of him had followed. Then he roused himself and finished his coffee and cigarette, looking out the wide window across the city below. Treetops and towers, roofs and domes, and arching skyways, busy swarms of air-cars glinting in the early sunlight. Not many people cared for Jao Coelho's music now, at least of all for the Eighth Symphony. It was the music of another time, a thousand years ago, when the Empire was blazing into being out of the long night and hammering back the neo-barbarians from world after world. Today people found it perturbing. He smiled faintly at the vacant chair opposite him and lit another cigarette before putting the breakfast dishes on the serving robot's tray, and, after a while, realized that the robot was still beside his chair waiting for dismissal. He gave it an instruction to summon the cleaning robots and sent it away. He could as easily have summoned them himself, or let the guards who would be in checking the room do it for him, but maybe it made a robot feel trusted and important to relay orders to other robots. Then he smiled, this time in self-derision. <laughs> a robot couldn't feel important, or anything else. A robot was nothing but steel and plastic and magnetized tape and photo-micro-positronic circuits, whereas a man—his Imperial Majesty Paul XXII, for instance—was nothing but tissues and cells and colloids and electro-neutronic circuits. There was a difference. Anybody knew that. The trouble was that he had never met anybody which included physicists, biologists, psychologists, psionicists, philosophers, and theologians who could define the difference in satisfactorily exact terms. He watched the robot pivot on its treads and glide away, trailing steam from its coffee-pot. It might be silly to treat robots like people, but that wasn't as bad as treating people like robots, an attitude which was becoming entirely too prevalent if only so many people didn't act like robots. He crossed to the elevator and stood in front of it, until a tiny electroencephalograph inside recognized his distinct brave-wave pattern. Across the room another door was popping open in response to the robot's distinctive wave pattern. He stepped inside and flipped a switch. There were still a few things around that had to be manually operated and the door closed behind him, and the elevator gave him an instant weightlessness as it started to drop forty floors. When it opened, Captain General Dorflay of the Household Guard was waiting for him with a captain and ten privates. General Dorflay was human. The captain and his ten soldiers weren't. 
They wore helmets emblazoned with the golden sun and superimposed black cogwheel of the empire, and red kilts and black ankle boots and weapons belts, and the captain had a narrow gold-laced cape over his shoulders, but for the rest their bodies were covered with a stiff mat of black hair, and their faces were slightly like terriers. For all his humanity, Captain General Dorfley's face was more like a bulldog's. They were hillmen from the southern hemisphere of Thor, and as a people they made excellent mercenaries. They were crack shots, brave and crafty fighters, totally uninterested in politics off their own planet, and because they had grown up in a patriarchal clan society, they were fanatically loyal to anybody whom they accepted as their chieftain. Paul stepped out and gave them an inclusive nod. "'Good morning, gentlemen.' "'Good morning, Your Imperial Majesty,' General Dorfley said, bowing the couple of inches consistent with military dignity. The Thoran captain saluted by touching his forehead, his heart, which was on the right side, and the butt of his pistol. Paul complimented him on the smart appearance of his detail, and the captain asked how it could be otherwise with the example and inspiration of His Imperial Majesty. Compliment and response could have been a playback from every morning of the ten years of his reign. So could Dorfley's question. Your Majesty will proceed to his study? He wanted to say, No, to Nefelheim with it. Let's get an air car and fly a million miles somewhere. And watch the look of shocked incomprehension on the Captain General's face. He couldn't do that, though. Poor old Harv Dorfley might have had a heart attack. He nodded slowly. If you please, General. Dorfley nodded to the Thorin captain, who nodded to his men. Four of them took two paces forward. The rest, unslinging weapons, went scurrying up the corridor, some posting themselves along the way, and the rest continuing to the main hallway. The captain and two of his men started forward slowly. After they had gone twenty feet, Paul and General Dorfley fell in behind them, and the other two brought up the rear. "'Your Majesty,' Dorfley said in a low voice, "'let me beg you to be most cautious. I have just discovered that there exists a treasonous plot against your life.' Paul nodded. Dorfley was more than due to discover another treasonous plot. It had been ten days since the last one. I believe you mentioned it, General. Something about planting loose strontium-90 in the upholstery of the audience throne, wasn't it? And before that, somebody had been trying to smuggle a fusion bomb into the palace in a wine cask. And before that, it was a booby trap in the elevator. And before that, somebody was planning to build a submachine gun into the viewscreen in the study, and— Oh, no, Your Majesty, that was—well, the persons involved in that plot became alarmed and fled the planet before I could arrest them. This is something different, Your Majesty. I have learned that unauthorized alterations have been made on one of the cooking robots in your private kitchen, and I am positive that the object is to poison Your Majesty. They were turning into the main hallway between the rows of portraits of past emperors, Paul and Roderick, Paul and Roderick, alternating over and over on both walls. He felt a smile growing in his face and banished it. 
The robot for the meat sauces, wasn't it? he asked. Why, yes, your majesty. I'm sorry, general. I should have warned you. Those alterations were made by roboticists from the Ministry of Security. They were installing an adaptation of a device used in the criminalistics lab to ensure more uniform measurements. They'd done that already for Prince Travon, the minister, and he'd recommended it to me. That was a shame, spoiling poor Harv Dorfley's murder plot. It had been such a nice little plot, too. He must have had a lot of fun inventing it. But a line had to be drawn somewhere. Let him turn the palace upside down hunting for bombs, harass ladies-in-waiting whose lovers he suspected of being hired assassins, hound musicians into whose instruments he imagined firearms had been built. The Emperor's private kitchen would have to be off-limits. Dorfle, who should have been looking crestfallen but relieved, stopped short. Shocking breach of court etiquette, and was staring in horror. "'Your Majesty! Prince Travon did that openly and with your consent? But, Your Majesty, I am convinced that it is Prince Travon himself who is the instigator of every one of these diabolical schemes. In the case of the elevator I became suspicious of a man named Samuel Goner, one of Prince Travon's secret police agents. In the case of the gun in the viewscreen, it was a technician whose sister is a member of the household of Countess Yerzy, Prince Travon's mistress. In the case of the fission bomb, the two Thorns and their captain had kept on for some distance before they had discovered that they were no longer being followed and were returning. He put his hand on General Dorfle's shoulder and urged him forward. Have you mentioned this to anybody? Not a word, Your Majesty. The court is so full of treachery that I can trust no one, and we must never warn the villain that he is suspected. Good. Say nothing to anybody. They had reached the door of the study now. I think I'll be here until noon. If I leave earlier, I'll flash you a signal. He entered the big oval room, lighted from overhead by the great star map in the ceiling, and crossed to his desk with the view screens and reading screens and communication screens around it. And as he sat down, he cursed angrily, first at Harb Dorfle, and then, after a moment's reflection, at himself. He was the one to blame. He'd known Dorfle's paranoid condition for years. Have to do something about it. Any psychomedic could certify him. Be no problem at all to have him put away, but be blasted if he'd do that. That was no way to repay loyalty, even insane loyalty. Well, he'd find a way. He lit a cigarette and leaned back, looking up at the glowing swirl of billions of billions of tiny lights in the ceiling. At least there were supposed to be billions of billions of them. He never counted them, and neither had any of the seventeen Rodericks and sixteen Pauls before him who had sat under them. His hand moved to a control button on his chair arm, and a red patch roughly the shape of a pork chop appeared on the western side. That was the Empire. Every one of the thousand three hundred and sixty-five inhabited worlds, a trillion and a half intelligent beings, fourteen races, 
fifteen if you counted the Zarathustrian fuzzies who were almost able to qualify under the talk-and-build-a-fire rule. And that had been the Empire when Roderick VI had seen the map completed, and when Paul II had built the palace, and when Stefan IV, the grandfather of Paul I, had proclaimed Odin the imperial planet, and Asgard the capital city. There had been some excuse for staying inside that patch of stars then. A newly won empire must be consolidated within before it can safely be expanded. But that had been over eight centuries ago. He looked at the daily schedule, beautifully embossed and neatly slipped under his desk glass, luncheon on the south upper terrace with the prime minister and the bench of imperial councillors. Yes, it was time for that again. That happened as inevitably and regularly as Harvdorf lays murder plots. And in the afternoon a plenary session, cabinet and councillors. Was he going to have to endure the bench of councillors twice in the same day? Ah, then the vexation was washed out of his face by a spreading grin. Bench of councillors. That was the answer. Elevate Harvdorf lay to the bench. That was what the bench was for. A gold-plated dustbin for the disposal of superannuated dignitaries. He'd do no harm there, and a touch of outright lunacy might enliven and even improve the bench. And in the evening a banquet and a reception and ball, in honor of His Majesty Ronulf Fourteenth, planetary king of Dorindal, and first citizen, Zerth Yago people's manager-in-chief of and for the planetary commonwealth of Aditya. Bargain day! Two planetary chiefs of state in one big combination deal. He wondered what sort of prizes he had drawn this time, and closed his eyes, trying to remember. Dorindal, of course, was one of the sword-worlds, settled by refugees from the losing side of the system-states war, in the time of the old Terran Federation who had reappeared in galactic history a few centuries later as the Space Vikings. They all had monarchial and rather picturesque governments. Durandal, he seemed to recall, was a sort of quasi-feudalism. About Aditya he was less sure. Something unpleasant, he thought. The titles of the government and his head were suggestive. He lit another cigarette and snapped on the reading screen to see what they had piled onto him this morning and then swore when a graph chart with jiggling red and blue and green lines appeared. Chart day two. Everything happens at once. It was the interstellar trade situation chart from economics. Red line for production, green line for exports, blue for imports, sectioned vertically for the ten vice-royalties, and subsectioned for the perfectitures. And with the magnification and focus controls, he could even get data for individual planets. He didn't bother with that, and wondered why he bothered with the charts at all. The stuff was at least twenty days behind date, and not uniformly so, which accounted for much of the jiggling. It had been transmitted from planetary proconsulate to prefecture, and from prefecture to viceroyalty, and from there to Odin all by ship. A ship on hyperdrive could log light-years an hour, but radio waves still had to travel 186,000 miles per second. 
The supplementary chart for the past five centuries told the real story. Three perfectly level and perfectly parallel lines. It was the same on all the other charts. Population fluctuating slightly at the moment, completely static for the past five centuries. A slight decrease in agriculture, matched by an increase in synthetic food production. A slight population movement toward the more urban planets and the more densely populated centers. A trend downward in employment, non-working population increasing by about .001% annually. Not that they were building better robots, they were just building them faster than they wore out. They all told the same story. A stable economy, a static population, a peaceful and undisturbed empire. Eight centuries, five at least, of historyless tranquility. Well, that was what everybody wanted, wasn't it? He flipped through the rest of the charts and began getting summarized ministry reports. Economics had denied a request from the mining cartel to authorize operations on a couple of uninhabited planets, danger of local market gluts and overstimulation of manufacturing. Permission granted to Robotics Cartel to request from planetary government of Durandal for increase of cereal export quotas under consideration. They wouldn't want to turn that down while King Runolf was here. Impulsively, he punched out a combination on the communication screen and got Count Douglas, Minister of Economics. Count Douglas had thinning red hair and a plump, agreeable extrovert's face. He smiled and waited to be addressed. "'Sorry to bother your lordship,' Paul greeted him. "'What's the story on this export quota request from Durandal? We have their king here now. Think he's come to lobby for it?' Count Douglas chuckled. <laughs> "'He's not doing anything about it himself. Have you met him yet, sir?' "'Not yet. He's to be presented this evening.' Well, when you see him, I think the masculine pronoun is permissible. You'll see what I mean, sir. It's this Lord Koref, the marshal. He came here on business and had to bring the king along, for fear somebody else would grab him while he was gone. The whole object of Durandalian politics, as I understand it, is to get possession of the person of the king. Koref was on my screen for half an hour. I just got rid of him. Planets pretty heavily agricultural. They had a couple of very good crop years in a row, and now they have grain running out their ears, and they want to export it and cash in. Well, can't let them do it, Your Majesty. They're not suffering any hardships. They're just not making as much money as they think they ought to. If they start dumping their surplus into interstellar trade, they'll cause all kinds of dislocations on other agricultural planets. At least that's what our computers all say. And that, of course, was gospel. He nodded. Why don't they turn their surplus into whiskey? Age it five or six years, and it'd be on the luxury goods schedule, and they could sell it anywhere. Count Douglas's eyes widened. I never thought of that, Your Majesty. Just a microsec. I want to make a note of that. Pass it down to somebody who could deal with it. That's a wonderful idea, Your Majesty." He finally got the conversation to an end and went back to the reports. Security, as usual, had a few items above the dead level of bureaucratic procedure. 
the planetary king of Excalibur, had been assassinated by his brother and two nephews, all three of whom were now fighting among themselves. As nobody had anything to fight with except small arms and a few light cannon, there would be no intervention. There had been intervention on Behemoth, however, when a whole continent had tried to secede from the planetary republic, and the imperial navy had been requested to send a task force. That was all right in both cases. No interference with anything that passed for a planetary government, but only one sovereignty on any planet with nuclear weapons, and only one supreme sovereignty in a galaxy with hyperdrive ships. And there had been rioting on Amaterasu because of the public indignation over a fraudulent election. He looked at that in incredulous delight. Why, here on Odin there hadn't been an election in the past six centuries that hadn't been utterly fraudulent. Nobody voted except the non-workers, whose votes were bought and sold wholesale by gangster bosses to pressure groups, and no decent person would be caught within a hundred yards of a polling place on an election day. He called the Minister of Security. Prince Travon was a man of his own age. They had been classmates at the university, but he looked older. His thin face was lined, and his hair was almost completely white. He was at his desk, with the sun and cogwheel of the Empire on the wall behind him, but on the breast of his black tunic he wore the badge of his family, a silver planet with three silver moons. Unlike Count Douglas, he didn't wait to be spoken to. "'Good morning, Your Majesty.' "'Good morning, Your Highness. Sorry to bother you.' "'I just caught an interesting item in your report. This business on Amaterasu. What sort of a planet is it politically? I don't seem to recall.' End of Part One